If you have your Bibles, let me get, I'm caught unaware here. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and um, take them out and open to the book of Exodus. Um, You can open up to the book of Exodus chapter 9. I want to do a little bit of review first because it's been a little bit of time since we met. And if you don't have a packet, you can get one on the back, uh, stand back there. But um, as we take a look at uh, the rest of the plagues tonight is where what we're diving into. We had fin- when we had finished, left off a couple weeks ago, we left with um, the fourth plague, I believe. And we will continue with plagues five and following uh, tonight. That will be the, the bulk of where we spend most of our time this evening. Um, but before that, I want to just review what we've said so far so that we're all on the same page. Um, it can get really confusing as we start thinking about dates and timelines and all of those kinds of things. And so remember, we, we had dealt a good deal with in Genesis with Abraham and his story, which we're looking largely at the 2000 to 1900 B.C. Remember, it was working backwards, okay, in the B.C. era, but about roughly 2000s to 1900, somewhere in that range, uh, we're seeing Abraham's story. And then we've, by the time we've gotten to Exodus, we have progressed through the story all the way up to what we think is probably about the 1400s. So 1446 is considered by most to be called the early date of the Exodus. And remember, I said that we dated it there or we felt reasonably confident about the dating of the Exodus there because we've got Solomon building the temple. We know in about 966 and they were, I'm trying to think of my math for a second, they, it took 480 years from the Exodus to get to the building of the temple, which would have put it in 1446. I think, Bob, am I right there? You're the, you're the, you're the math whiz on all this, right? I'm, if, I can't depend on, if I can't depend on a finance professor, who can I depend on? Uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, that should get us to somewhere around 1446. The dates are right, even if my math is wrong. So whatever that adds up to, that's about right. So 1446 is considered the early date. If you go with what some would, could, would call the late date of the Exodus, that pushes it closer to us by about 200 years and puts it somewhere in the 1200s, but it throws off a little bit of the dating of other things. And so we end up having to say somewhere in there, well, they're rounding by a couple hundred years or they were wrong. And I'm not super comfortable with that. So (laughs) for obvious reasons. And so 1446 becomes about the day we think the Exodus or about the year we think the Exodus started, at least the approximate year uh, the Exodus began. Now, We also said there's some key figures in history that feature, we think, prominently in this Exodus story. The first is is, uh, Hatshepsut, who is, it's Egyptian names, man. Those are rough. As soon as you get to Hebrew names, you got those down, then you get Egyptian names. They're different. Um, Hatshepsut is uh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, and we think this is probably, if we've got the year right, on the Exodus, then she would be the most likely candidate as the daughter of Pharaoh who's in the river and finds baby Moses. We also talked a couple of weeks ago about how this really uh, would line up with the kind of character that we see. Her father would have been the one that had 
decreed the infanticide. His name was uh, uh, Tutmos I. And he would have decreed the infanticide. And uh, she would be the kind of person, at least with what history kind of bears out, she would be the kind of person to go, yeah, I know you talked about killing all the Hebrew babies, but isn't this one so cute? And, uh, and really just you know, brought him into the family. Uh, so that, that kind of lines up. But those are the two central characters there. Um, then we've got Tutmose III, who would have been the successor to Tutmose II. Remember, Tutmose II was uh, Hatshepsut's husband and also her half-brother. And he died pretty early, and he left Tutmose III with control of the, the, the kingdom, as it were. And so once Hatshepsut dies... About three years later would have been the time when Moses would have been driven out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And so that relatively lines up because, or at least with the years that we've got here, because Hatshepsut seems to have taken a liken to Moses, and that would have been her adopted son. And Tutmose III felt a little bit of rivalry. We know that for a fact, even with hot chef suit because her policies are the ones that end up getting enacted. If you look at your little uh, thing that we included at the back here, the dynasties in Egypt here at the back, you'll see that there is a period of time where there's some overlap between hot chef suit and Tutmose III, where they're both kind of co-reigning. And what seemed to be the case, at least in history, is that she has a lot of her policies already enacted when her husband dies. Tutmose III is co-reigning with her. As soon as she dies, he goes back through the land and pretty much eradicates all evidence of her uh, policies. And so it seems as though there was not there was some maybe felt bad blood, but Tutmose III couldn't really do much because she had more leverage over him with the people, it seems like that's what history bears out. And so she dies and he, Tutmose III, it seems would be, if we're reconciling this with the biblical account, just looking for an excuse to send Moses out to the wilderness. Moses kills an Egyptian, which is a relatively minor offense, and he gets driven out to the wilderness. Um, Then we have uh, Amenhotep II, who takes over the throne at at some point and... um, Remember, there's a, the word comes to Moses out in, the, out in Midian, and the Lord says to him, all those who sought your life are dead. And so shortly after the death of Tutmose III, if you'll look there on the back, uh, shortly after the death of Tutmose III, which would have been in 1450, we have then 1446, so four years later, Moses would go back into Egypt, and Amenhotep would have been... The, the, the ruler back then, or at least the, the Pharaoh that we're looking at in the Exodus, the Pharaoh that's receiving the plagues. Um, so I forgot to put that up on the screen. There we go. Amenhotep II is likely the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Does that make sense of the timeline? Everybody tracking with me? Questions there? Go ahead, Shannon. No, 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 no. no you, the names are new, right? The names are new. So there's confusion over that, but are you tracking with the timeline is how, how it would work? Okay. Um, so in the plagues leading up to the Exodus, 
God is, we understand these plagues as God judging the Egyptians and the Egyptian gods for their enslavement and for their treatment of the Hebrew people. Remember, the Hebrew people are the ones that have cried out to God because of their enslavement. And remember, we, we also, I also said a, a couple weeks ago that at the beginning of Exodus, we get that statement, there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And that, that really coincides with the time period that we're looking at here because the 18th dynasty comes in and rules. This is a whole new group of people that came in and kicked out the Hyksos. And so the Hyksos are gone and the 18th dynasty is ruling. And that ushers in all of these people that we're looking at here, this kind of succession of rulers. So it's not just that there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, there arose a whole dynasty who knew not Joseph, right? Who did not know who Joseph was or have any relationship with these people out in Goshen other than these people are not us and they're bigger than us. And so that's a problem because we just came in and kicked out a dynasty and they're out here and they could easily mount up an army and kill us. And so what do they do? They turn up the screws on persecution in hopes that it kills the, the process of them having children and that they, they don't really want to, and they start to die off naturally. But that doesn't happen. In fact, they grow bigger and stronger. And so what does the Pharaoh then do? He starts enacting the genocide of the children, the infanticide of, of the children. And so that, that we have um, uh, Tutmos the first, he comes in and he starts, he starts doing that. And that starts the whole process of Moses being born and brought into Pharaoh's family. We also note that uh, we don't get any warning about infanticide with Aaron's birth, who Aaron is three years older than Moses. We don't hear anything about Aaron and we don't hear anything about him as a baby or having to, you know, dodge the people coming in to kill. But then just a few years later, all of a sudden it is you know, it, it is a problem and Moses has to be put in a, a basket. That lines up really pretty nicely with uh, the I coming in and decreeing the infanticide. That would have been, the years would have lined up, in other words. Um, right at Moses' birth, he would have taken over. So, um, so those things come into the picture pretty nicely, and I think they reconcile with that year, 1446. But of course, uh, you know, what do we know? We believe the Bible's true, right? I mean, so... You know, according to the world, we're idiots, I guess. But, um, but I think that's right. I think it, it, I think it lines up pretty nicely. So we had, this, we had the, the four plagues already that we've looked at. And those four plagues, we said, are really judgments against the Egyptian gods. And you have to remember, anytime there's a confrontation between two warring nations, it's not just those two nations that are battling each other. It's the two respective gods that represent those nations warring as well. That's the worldview that we're talking about here in the Bible that we encounter is it's not just the nations, it's also the gods. We see this in Isaiah uh, when Hezekiah is really nervous about the Assyrian army coming in. You, know, you remember this story? And it's like Isaiah 36 to 39, somewhere in that, in that range. Hezekiah is really nervous about the Assyrians coming in and he's being assured by the prophet Isaiah, no, 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 God is for you, God is for you, God is for you. And he's considering, what do I do about the Assyrians coming in here? Well, the, the Assyrian king sends his emissary up to to Hezekiah, and he's like, look, don't bother calling out to your gods, because all the other nations before you have called out to their gods, and look at what we did. Our God is far superior to yours, so you need to just bow down to us and get it all over with, so you don't have to end up on a stake, 
basically. And Hezekiah is warned time and time again, don't, don't worry about it. You're not going to die at the hand of the Assyrians. You are at the hand of the Babylonians, but not at the hand of the Assyrians. And so sure enough, they go back home. The king goes back home and he's worshiping his God in his temple and his sons come up behind him and kill him in his temple. It ends up ruining the Assyrian dynasty and the Babylonian dynasty you know, rears its ugly head and ends up coming in and taking out the, the Jews. But that's, it kind of illustrates the same sort of point that there's a, it's a war between gods that's happening. And the one that gets conquered is the, the inferior god. Uh, we have the same picture in First uh, Samuel where the, they're out at the battlefield with the Philistines and they get defeated on, at the battle uh, or on the battlefield. And so what do, they, what do they do? Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant out here in the midst of us and so that we'll defeat the Philistines. And the Philistines beat them even worse and they take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in their temple next to Dagon, their God. You remember this, this story? Yes, it's familiar to you. This means yes, this means no. You're afraid to say yes or no. <laughs> yeah. You remember the story. So it's, it, it, we're constantly seeing this picture throughout uh, the Old Testament. And so when we get to the plagues, what we see is not only God coming to liberate his people and God coming to judge Pharaoh, but it's also a battle of gods. And so what we see represented in each of the plagues is a distinct God from the Egyptians that's being defeated, or at least a group of gods. And in some cases, it's a little bit less clear as to what God is being attacked here, but uh, as we're going to see this, this evening. So we get to the fifth plague, which is the, um, which is, uh, sorry, the, um, the plague of the Egyptian livestock, and it seems to be a judgment on the Egyptian goddess Hathor. Now, I'll show you a picture of her in just a second, but it, it seems like that's probably true. It could be Hathor, or it could actually be a group of gods all symbolized by a cow. A cow was a sacred deity in uh, the Egyptian, Egyptian times and it was a, uh, a symbol of prosperity. The people that owned cattle were wealthy, they had, I mean, just think about it for just a second. If you owned cattle, what does that mean you have? You have land. You have money. You have money and land. You, you have money to buy the land. You have money to buy the cattle. But you have money and you have land. Now, what does the cow provide to you? Steak, which is a, a huge benefit. What else does it provide? Milk, which is awesome. Anything else? What's that? What is it? Manure, so your land is fruitful? Any, plowing? Sure. Anything else? Leather, right? So you've got all kinds of things that cattle provide to you. And so if you have cattle, you are wealthy, you are blessed. If the most fruitful people have cattle, there must be something to the cow, Right? That's how the, the chain of logic goes right? in a pagan society. So cattle become this, this symbol of some sort of a divine presence or a deity. And it's not long before cattle end up being uh, at least worshipped or highly revered. And so you get these Egyptian gods and goddesses that are symbolized by cows or are symbolized by parts of cows. Okay, so we have uh, Hathor, and there's a few others that are also take on the symbol of a cow. So it could be 
um, it could be against her specifically, or it could be against the group of them together, all symbolized by the cow. But it seems as though there is a, a direct attack against the cow itself, okay? So here is Hathor. Uh, you can see this, is, this would be her on top of her head. You see up here? Um, the horns. You'll also see sometimes in Egyptian iconography or the hieroglyphics where the, you'll see like the women that are holding their hands in a position like this. You've probably seen this, I'm sure, at some point or another. And uh, that is kind of the same symbol as the, the cow horns, the horns of a bull. And so it's kind of a symbol of divine presence. And then you see on top of her head, between her horns, there is the symbol of the sun. So she, she is in amongst the sort of pantheon of gods that all have some sort of connection to the sun. And we're going to talk more about Ra in a minute, but um, there, so she's, she's part of that group as well. And they come to be symbolized as a cow. So then we have, this is in the temple. This is a picture in the temple. You can see, sort of weird, <laughs> but you have the cow here. Can you see my laser pointer? It's on the cow's eye. Okay, bullseye. Um, Touche. Uh, <laughs> the bullseye. Uh, and then if you go down here, this is Hatshepsut. How do we know? Uh, because it's in her temple. Um, she is suckling at the teat of the, of the cow with bullhorns. Uh, okay. Bullhorns. Hey. This wasn't. This was symbolic. Okay, so there you go. Um, you can see the sun is right there in between uh, the horns. But this is Hathor. She's thought to uh, provide uh, health and wealth and prosperity, and sought and sought to look after the king and care for the king, and uh, you know provided all kinds of from her milk provided wealth and prosperity. So. There you go. That's a historic image of them. So, um, the, so the fifth plague comes in and destroys the cattle. Uh, but what is preserved? Israel. Yes, Israel's livestock is protected. So she has often been considered the goddess of protection. I've got that listed down there. So, uh, fertility, love, protection. So uh, Hatshepsut is here, suckling from the milk, and she is gaining some sort of protection and fertility. But in the, the turnabout, in, the play, in, the, in this plague, in the fifth plague, is who is protected. Israel's cows are protected. Uh, we see this is the second time that's called out. It, the, the first time is in the previous plague. Okay. Um, probably not, it, but I would say it this way. The calf is symbolic of the whole group of them, okay? So they're probably, it's probably not one God. It's probably the sacredness of the cow that they're honoring, they're revering, and, and calling in multiple gods into that because Ra will take on the image of a cow at times, there's, there's several others that will take on the same image of a cow. And you'll see these bullhorns everywhere, almost. So, good question. All right, questions about that? 
Okay, so then the sixth plague comes in, and we see this um, probably the plague of boils, most likely, and this kind of gets a little bit fuzzy, but uh, is, is probably to the goddess uh, Isis. And some of these are a little bit confusing, and the reason is because we've seen a pattern so far developed that suggests, yes, indeed, it's gods that are being attacked. And some of them are crystal clear, like the goddess that, uh, uh, that has a body shaped like a frog. You know, that, that it seems to be abundantly clear what God is, is doing there. And then some, it gets a little bit fuzzy because some of these gods and goddesses have so many things they represent. I mean, a million different things that they represent. And so it's kind of hard to narrow down which one, and it could be a group of them. But it, it, it seems like it might be Isis is the one in... Uh, in the crosshairs here. Uh, she has been considered to be the goddess of medicine, magical power, and protection of the kingdom. And she's often depicted as the one nursing Pharaoh. We're going to see that in just a minute. But she's often seen as the one that's nursing Pharaoh, giving him healing and medicinal uh, powers. But then also this, there's an interesting part of this that she she. Seems to supply the magicians with their power. Okay, we'll look at the kind of irony that stands out in the passage here. It's in Exodus 9 8 to 12. So we see here it says, since it's a really short one, let's read that. It says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the, all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So look at what we see here in this little scene. We have, it, it's kind of an ironic, uh, that went too far, sorry. Let me go one more. Okay, right here. Um, so we have Moses and Aaron, and what are they seen doing? They're standing before Pharaoh. So they come in standing before Pharaoh, and the ironic twist is the magicians who are supposedly supplied by the power of Isis cannot stand in the presence of Moses. So they are Isis's representatives, presumably, and Moses and Aaron have no problem standing in their presence but Moses and Aaron are God's representatives, and the magicians supplied by the power of Isis have a real trouble standing in the presence of Moses and Aaron. Does that make sense? There's a twist there. And so a lot of people think, yes, that's, that's probably Isis, that it's talking about Isis was thought to be able to heal and give magical kind of powers, not only magical powers, magical powers of healing to Pharaoh and others. We see a picture of Isis here. Um, you can see this is a, a god, Horus, and she is actually supplying Horus with his power. Um, we've seen her in connection to pharaohs and things like that before. 
Again, we have the suckling teat imagery again. Same kind of deal. From the milk of the goddess comes provision and health and all kinds of things like that. Um, Questions about that? All right. So then we get the seventh plague, um, the plague of hail. And we think this may be uh, judgment on the goddess Nut. Her, her followers are called Nuts. They're simple. I got a pu- couple of people in my family, I think, worship. Uh, um, so she's often associated with um, as, as the sky goddess, and she, so she has control over all of the things that happen in the sky. We have tons of images of her uh, actually swallowing the sun at night. So she sits over the firmament, so to speak, and when the sun sets, it sets into her mouth, and then she gives birth to the sun the next morning. That's the, the imagery, all right? So, um, <laughs> so <laughs> Bob shivering. Hey, I'm just reporting the facts, all right? That's all, that's all I can do. Um, but so she, she is a, the sky goddess. She has control over the things that happen there. And um, there's some very interesting things, I think, about this plague that help kind of clue us in onto, well, when this is happening, but also some, uh, some divine mercy that's going on here in this that we probably wouldn't pick up on earlier uh, or any other way. Uh, in this plague, what we see is that the hail comes down, but there's some things that are spared. Do you remember what it is? Remember what's spared? It's wheat. Wheat is spared, okay? And there's a, there's a couple of really good reasons for that, but here, here's one thing to note, that the flax that's destroyed is not used for eating like we sometimes will eat flax. Uh, flax was used for garments, and so it would be kind of, um, I guess the plant would be stitched into garments, uh, uh, linen garments. And so, but then the barley that was destroyed in the hail, in the plague of hail, was used for beer. So basically, all the hipsters lamented over the fact that the hail had come, but, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a mercy that was given to the Egyptians. Why? Why do you think? Why is that a mercy? Why would that be a mercy? They could still eat. So you've got wheat that has, and, and, and it also tells us, it tells us something really important that because we see the, the linen garments that had been destroyed, or the, uh, the flax that had been destroyed, and the barley that had been destroyed, those are planted earlier and they come to fruit earlier. They come to fruit, and it, it even mentions here in the passage that they're destroyed because they were already starting to produce a crop which they produce a crop in February. And the wheat doesn't produce their crop until March. And so probably what's happening, and he tells us there that the wheat hadn't begun to bud yet, and so probably what's happening is this is sometime around the month of February. 
And so the wheat isn't destroyed because it, it still can produce a grain. You're going to have to wait for it, but it'll come about in March. That's my mercy. You're welcome. Don't worry, it's going to get destroyed in the next one anyway. So, but, but uh, if you listen, you can still have food. If you don't, well, then you won't. Um, but the, the, some of their conveniences, the linen garments and, and beer, are obviously wasted by the, by the hail. Does that make sense? You get where I'm coming from? Um, all right. Now, um, what we also get here, which is, I think, a, a further, uh, should be really interesting to us, is theologically, God steps in and explains some things that he has not explained yet up to this point. Look at verse 16. He tells Pharaoh this, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now we see this verse will be quoted in the New Testament quite, for, uh, quite frequently, but essentially what he's getting at here is we've seen over and over again God tell Moses, go to Pharaoh, but then we see before that or right after that it says, but God went to Pharaoh before Moses, beat him there, and he hardened his heart so that Pharaoh wouldn't listen. And then once the plague hit, Pharaoh may relent, or he may change his mind, or he may do whatever, but then God will come back in and harden his heart yet again, and he'll relent of his relenting, and he'll come back and pursue the, the Moses and Aaron and the Israelites even harder the next time, and they'll have to have another plague. And why is that? You, we have to ask over the course of all these, why doesn't he just let, let Pharaoh be convinced by the plagues and let the people go? Isn't that what he wants? This whole time, doesn't isn't he just trying to convince Pharaoh that Pharaoh, you really it's in your best interest to let my people go? No, you're still not convinced. Well, here's another plague. You're still not convinced. You're not. No, he says very unequivocally that the reason why he keeps coming back with these plagues, the reason why he keeps hardening Pharaoh's heart. In fact, the reason why Pharaoh was born was to accomplish this purpose. Just think about that for a second. The very reason why I raised you up was for this purpose. And we're actually going to see that play out in the coming plagues, but then the rest of the Bible will bear that out. Because the Israelites are going to be told, these plagues, they're not just for the Egyptians. These plagues are for you. I want you to watch this. The old adage is it, was, it would be easy for God to get his people out of Egypt. The harder work is to get Egypt out of his people. But it seems as though what he's doing is just that. He's working Egypt out of his people. He's been down there for 400 years. The God of the cow is second nature to them by this point. Even just being in the culture... Well, think about us as a church community. I mean, the Obergefell decision, which was the decision passed by the Supreme Court in 2015 that legalized same-sex marriage, was a big deal in 2015. It was a huge deal. I remember in my church there was weeping and gnashing of teeth when it was passed. Flash forward four years, and we've kind of gotten used to it. Sure, we'll have discussions. Sure, we'll say, well, that's wrong. Well, sure, we'll say, that's not marriage. 
We'll say all those kinds of things, and that, that's right. And we see a gay couple on a, on a commercial. The sensitivity is starting to wear off. Now, flash forward 400 years. What do you think life is like for our kids, 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 kids? They're used to it. All right. <clears throat> Here is um, the sky goddess herself. Yep, she looks like a nut. Um, you can see she has the, um, the jar on her head as the controller of the sky. She pours things out, right? She... Um, Yep, they all look the same. After a while, they all start to look the same. They're all, they're all displayed on the walls in a very similar fashion. What you see is that they're, the only difference might be in some of the things that they have, they're holding, some of the things that they're wearing, or in this case, no horns and, and no sun above her head. Instead, this is a, um, a, a bowl, a vessel of some sort that's used to pour out things, and so there's a little bit of a different, and we'll see, there's lots of different paintings that, that have her in there. You can Google it when you get home, and you can see. You might want to put nut, and in parentheses, put goddess, because no telling what you'll get. If you just, you know, uh, crazy people. Uh, okay, so then, what's that? It's an ankh. So, it's, it's a symbol of life, and it's uh, thought because the three little branches here, you have the branch going to the left, the branch going to the right, and the branch going down. Um, there's three consonants that make up the, the word ankh. And so they came up with a three-pronged device, and then the loop um, is a symbol of life. And so it's attached to the, the top. It's hard to ascertain exactly why that came about, but there it is. An onk. They're all carrying it. And almost all the images, they all have it. Um, so we have the eighth plague. Um, the eighth plague is uh, judgment on the god Set, or it, it may be Seth, but it's um, the, god, the god Set. You've probably seen him before. I'll, I'll show you a picture in just a second. Um, but he's thought to be the god of chaos, the desert, Storms, disorder, and violence. And there's no better picture than of all of that than a locust. Um, probably one of the worst plagues that could ever come to an uh, agrarian society would be the plague of locusts who come in to the point where they, they cover the entire ground, you can't see anything, and they devour everything from top to bottom. Um, and then eventually they leave. Um, so when there's, no, when there's no food left. So it depletes the entire food supply. Uh, so one of the worst plagues that can come upon uh, a, a group of people. And you're seeing that they're getting worse as time goes by. They're getting more personal. They're getting more severe. They're getting, uh, well, yeah, they're, just, they're getting worse until we get up to the 10th plague, which is going to be the, by far the worst. Um, but here, here's where we get this uh, s statement. If you'll look in chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. 
He says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So we get a clear picture, another clearer picture of exactly why God is doing this. It is not just for the Egyptians, but so that you can catechize your children. It's for catechism. It's so that when your children, and we see this again pop up in Deuteronomy 6, when your children ask, why do we do these things? Why do we have this thing over here? Why do we do that thing over there? Why do we go to this place every, every Sabbath? Why do we do these kinds of things? You can tell them. Because God brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. and He destroyed Pharaoh and his, his military, his army, with ten plagues. And he eventually killed his army in the sea. He led us up to this point. God has redeemed us with an outstretched arm. That's why. So these these plagues are are meant as a a form of of catechism for our children. But the lesson continues to go throughout the church as well. If you just at some point in your leisure, just read Deuteronomy 6. And you'll see the importance there of parents catechizing their children. And, and really, catechism is just is teaching. It's teaching their children. But l- let's just take, zoom back for just a second. What does the church as a whole look like? Well, for the last 50 or more years, we've taught parents, the experts, the professionals are the ones that catechize children. The professionals are the ones that teach your children. That's not biblical. It's very new. Children's church. Crazy new concept. (laughs) Parents teach children. Parents raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Children obey your ministers. No. Children obey your parents. That it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. It's parents that catechize their children. It's parents that teach your children. Part of the reason why I like to see children included in our worship is because it helps parents teach their children. We're not saying they have to, but it helps. The children see the parents sing The parents are able to talk about what was preached, what was taught from the Word. They're able to go home and take Scripture and lay it out there. But look at the mentality that, that we struggle with sometimes. I know, I feel it too. My, ki- my own kids are in here, all right? So don't think that in the back of my mind while I'm preaching, I'm not thinking, what's Grayson doing? What's Andrew doing? What, what are my kids doing over there? Are they, are they acting like crazies? All right? Part of that's in the back of my mind. I've got that back here. I understand that that's in the back of all of our minds. But I wonder if it's always been that way in church. I don't think it has been. I think this is a relatively new thing. The kids are supposed to be out of the sanctuary. They're supposed to be over there. They're not bothering us because we don't want it to be a distraction. All we've ended up doing is just making this a professional show. 
It's supposed to be polished. That's not at all it. This is a family coming together to worship. Kids need to see that. All right, enough lecturing. Let's move on. Um, this is set. Um, you've probably seen this, yes? The weird dog-looking head uh, on the god. You've probably seen this. is probably one of the more famous ones, I think. Um, but again, uh, he he's, was mostly considered to be kind of a violent character and sort of the anti-hero, so to speak, of the gods. And one that sort of plagued the people. And, you know, anytime he, it was a, so locust, it, it really fits with, with him. <laughs> so what, do what? Loki, yeah. <laughs> Good Marvel reference. <laughs> um, yeah, any questions on, on that part of it? All right. Um, the ninth plague. Uh, was a judgment on the god Ra. So let me get it here. R-A. Ra is the god of the sun, or thought to be the god of the sun. He is also uncreated, which means he is the ruler, or thought to be the ruler of all he created. Ra was responsible for providing warmth, uh, sunlight, and productivity. And so what do you notice here in the ninth plague? is that it's dark and everybody just kind of stays on their couch because it's so dark outside. They can't see each other. There's no sense in going outside and trying to work. Uh, so everybody ends up being lazy. Well, it's, a, it's an attack on the sun god Ra, who is thought to provide all of these things for his people, not least of which is the sun. But the sun also provides what? Warmth, light, productivity. You're able to work. The, your society is able to flourish. And so Ra gets associated with all of these characteristics that all come undone in the ninth plague. Once there's so much darkness that nobody can actually see each other, then what are they reduced to? They're reduced to just sitting there and doing nothing. And so productivity dies, warmth dies, sunlight dies, uh, depression increases, I'm sure. Tons of other things are a product of that. And it's all an assault on uh, one of the biggest gods of all. So what we're also seeing as a pattern in the ninth plague, we see this in the third plague and we see this in the sixth plague as well, which a lot of people think there's three cycles of three plagues and then one big tenth one at the very end. But those three cycles are all ended by an unannounced plague. That it's not like Moses goes in and does battle with Pharaoh. There's a lot of talk. He just kind of does it. And well, there you go. There's the plague. And it seems to be somewhat unannounced, though Pharaoh obviously knows who did it. Um, all right. And so the, uh, any questions on that? The ninth plague? Here's the god Ra. See, very similar. Now we've got a little bird head. Here we've got the sun above him. Around the sun, this is true of um, Hathor as well. Around the sun is a cobra. Thought to kind of the cobra was thought to sort of harness the power of the sun. I guess is the the, the imagery going on there. Again, still with the ankh in the left hand. Um, the tenth and final plague is the worst plague of all. The plague of the firstborn, which seems to be a judgment on Pharaoh himself, who is thought to be the most powerful. He's the, the thought to be the ultimate power in Egypt. Um, he was, it, it was believed that he was actually the son of Ra himself, that he was Ra 
incarnate. He was raw in the flesh, manifest in the flesh. And so here comes the 10th plague, and all the baby boys or all the firstborn male children are dead. So not only does that, uh, uh, well, that harms the line of Pharaoh, doesn't it? What we, remember we saw um, a couple weeks ago where, uh, I'm going to have to go back, dig back in the names. Amenhotep II takes over as king, I believe, and, uh, or as Pharaoh, and we have good reason to believe he comes right after Tutmos III. Is that right? You just looked at it. Tutmos III was on the throne. Amenhotep II takes over instead of Tutmos IV. And it's thought, we, we have an inscription, remember, am I wrong? I got the names wrong, I'm probably sure. Okay. Um, yeah, Tut, yeah. Tutmos IV is after Amenhotep II, but uh, would have been before Amenhotep II, except that the one that would have taken the title, Tutmos IV, died. And the reason we think that that's true is because when, in the, you know, the Sphinx, you remember the Sphinx in Egypt, in between the Sphinx's legs, there is a plaque that was, that's just as old as the Sphinx is, that details the description there of Amenhotep II as a young boy walking up to the Sphinx as it's buried under the sand. And the vision from, I think it's Horus, tells him, if you uncover the Sphinx in the sand, you will be king. And the implication is, instead of your older brother, who would be king ordinarily, would be Pharaoh. And so he does so, and he takes the throne. So that would seem to line up there with the death of the firstborn, if I've got the names right. But I think that's, that's exactly right. Um, does that make sense? You tracking with me? Yeah? Okay. Um, all right. Now, when we, get, when we see the plagues in the Bible, uh, we've talked about how they're a reminder for the people of Israel um, throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But let's just take a look at a couple of passages that we're going to see here in Psalm 77, 11 through 20. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With your arm, you, uh, with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. When the waters... Uh, uh, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The clash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up uh, the, the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through um, through the, the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led you, uh, your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Look at Psalm 78, 43 and following. When he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink on their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. Look at the next passage in Psalm 105, 26. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. Now, what is the book of Psalms? 
What is it? Yeah, it's a Hebrew hymnal. So these psalms, when they come up, where are they, where are they being sung? In worship. So the people throughout the years, as long as they've got the psalms, are reminding themselves in the psalms over and over and over again of the mighty hand and outstretched arm through which the Lord saved his people out of Egypt and put to death Pharaoh. But this image of the Exodus and the power that God's displaying there kind of becomes a a theme really throughout the Bible, but it appears again in Revelation. The plagues feature prominently in both the bowls and the trumpet plagues in the book of Revelation. So we have the bowls, which takes place in Revelation 16. We have the trumpets, which take place in Revelation chapter 8. I want you to see this. This is not too, too many passages here. So just look at uh, these as they appear in Revelation on your passage list here. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. A third angel blew his trumpet, a great star from heaven blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers. And on the, uh, on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water, the name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and, made people, uh, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck. A third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened. And a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Look at Revelation 9, 3 to 4. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Look at 13 to 15. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound uh, uh, at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. So the first angel, look at 16, two, 2 to 4, now we're in the bowls being poured out. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. Harmful, painful, harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out its bowl into the sea and it became like the blood, like a blood of a corpse and every living thing um, died in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl and the rivers and the springs of the waters became blood. Look at 16, 10 to 11. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. 16.13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs and, the great, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. John revisits the plagues of Egypt again. 
because God is doing in Exodus a second time. You can't miss this. The idea of what's happening with Jesus returning, well, Jesus' initial death, but then which inaugurated it, but then his returning, his coming back, is to bring his people out of the hands of Egypt one more time. That's the image that's being communicated throughout Revelation. You have Egypt, you have Babylon, you have the wickedest cities that have ever been known to man that have plagued his people for so many years throughout the entire Old Testament. They serve as an image of the entire rest of the sinful world that is holding captive the people of God under the thumb of sin and oppression. John will attack the entire world system. Everything from the way we trade money, the way we uh, beg, borrow, and steal, the way we take on debt, the way we live for luxury and pleasure, the way we desire goods and services, the way we do all of those things is all from part of the same system that won't last. And all of it entices every single one of us every single day to buy into it. And the, the image that comes about in Revelation, both in chapter 8, well, really throughout the whole book, but both in chapter 8 and in chapter 15 and 16, is that God's going to do a great work once again where he's going to tear asunder the wicked system that we live in. He's going to bring it to naught. The same way he did with Pharaoh in Egypt. See, the plagues that we're looking at are not just for Pharaoh. They're not just for the Jews. They're for us too. But they're a reminder of a greater exodus to come where God really reclaims the world for his own. And some you would say the exodus, some say the exodus is, is us being taken out of the world. I think it's more the world being taken out of us. Where the beast, the devil, the false prophet are all thrown into the lake of fire, and everyone who wants to go with them, all thrown into the lake of fire. The earth is remade, and we're made fit to dwell in it. And no unclean thing will ever enter it. It's a beautiful picture. Questions, comments? Everybody still wondering what, what's up with the thirds? Jeff? <laughs> All right. Go ahead. You have a question? Did you have a, oh. I was hoping for a question. No? Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word and, it te- and the fact that it testifies to us over and over again that we're yours and that, that you will redeem us. You already have with Christ that you will yet again destroy the wickedness that's in the world. It's a reminder to us of the fact that we shouldn't buy into it. I pray, Lord, for the confidence and security of knowing that you will, in fact, keep your promises. We see it time and time again 
promises that you've made in the Old Testament that have been kept to your people. And we have one outstanding promise left before us, which is your return, and we wait for it. We long for that day when the temptations that we face are no longer, when the trials that we face are no longer, the death that seems imminent to all of us is no longer. The cancer is gone. We long for that day. We want that day. Lord, I pray that you give us the perseverance, the strength to make it to that day. Pray that you would put that day before us in our minds. All of the stuff we do now, all the stuff we take part in now, all the stuff we want now would all be viewed in light of that day. In Jesus' name, amen.